The Pinball Network is online. Launching Silverball Chronicles. <laughs> Kenny Loggins. Fucking Kenny Loggins. Yeah, I don't think he, he had can. like what, two songs? Hey, that is not true at all. Your mama don't dance and your daddy don't rock and roll. The one with Stevie Nicks. That's the one I know. Sweet love down on a heavenly line. I never seen such a beautiful sight. I'm alright. Don't nobody worry about me. Full loose. Full loose. Come on. Highway to the danger zone. I'm missing one. This is it. The one Michael McDonald. This is it. There you go. There's some outtake material. Hello everyone, I'm David Dennis and this is Silverball Chronicles. And with me this month is Ron Tiny Dancer Hallett. How you doing, fella? Tiny Dancer, very good, okay. It's an upcoming game from Jersey Jack, rumors. Allegedly. Allegedly. That's right, and of course you are a very good dancer. People don't know that. Uh, I didn't know that, but I'm glad you... I'm glad you... (laughs) (laughs) all right what have you been doing besides dancing ron have you been out to a couple crazy tournaments recently or what uh it's been a while since we recorded i know i know we've been uh we've had quite the uh the adventure here over the last little month but i want to get a couple of them banged out here over the next few weeks and uh we'll see how it goes i'm very excited about today's topic but you've just been knee deep in major tournament winnings i have i went to texas you went to Texas with a big win in Texas? I, I won in Texas. Well, you got into the into the finals, didn't you? No. Oh. Oh, that's that's depressing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you have got to play all the new games in Texas, which is really cool, which I have not got around to playing just yet. Yes, the most new games. And that's this is an historical thing, because that had to be the biggest collection of new games ever in one location at one show. Ever. And the history of pinball. If it was me, I would have delayed my launch and not launched it there so I could get more oxygen. Because if you're all fighting for the same time and energy, I don't know, man, but I'm not a marketing person. I'm just a pinball player. But I am glad for a lot of new pinball, even if it's not great pinball. Pinball is lots of fun regardless. It might not sell anything, but it's still fun. All pinball is good. So we've sold out recently. We've joined Patreon, as everybody knows. You can uh, join us over at patreon.com slash silverballchronicles. There you can uh, join us in all of our uh, rumblings and musings. We want to welcome William, Noland, JC, Rob, and Andrew to the amazing Silverball Chronicles Patreon. Those are the new cronies, Ron. The new cro- I thought we were calling them cronies. No, we did the vote. I put it up, and they went with cronies. Cronies, okay. 
because they that's what the Patreons have uh, decided in the vote, as well as we put a vote up for today's topic, which we'll get to in a minute. A lot of those free stickers are going out. Those are for our $6 a month tier, where you get access to our private Discord. You get to uh, ask us questions on the podcast. You get to vote on upcoming topics. And of course, early ad-free access for Silverball Chronicles. So come join us over there. What's the top tier, Ron? The top tier is the elitist cronies. Exactly. So that's where you get all of the perks of the $6 a month tier. But after three months, you get a Silverball Chronicles t-shirt. And the t-shirts, I've got a notification, have gone out for our first Patreons at that level. So that's great. Congratulations, cronies. And if you would just like to say thank you, no big commitment. You just send us a a $3 a month uh, uh, spot there at our pro level. So swing on over and join us on probably the laziest Patreon in pinball. You can also join us at Facebook, facebook.com slash silverballchronicles. And we always remind you to please leave a five-star review so others can find us easily when they're looking for new pinball podcasts. Unless the highest rating is six stars, in which case leave us a six-star review. Do we have any comments or corrections from the previous episode, Ron? Let's see. I'm looking here. Uh, I don't see any. No, that's because we are 100% perfect in everything that we do. Okay. I believe the subject of our last episode, listen to the episode. Yes. And he did not write us, so we have to assume we, we got it right, or at least good enough. And like all topics that we cover and an individual is still around, they often say, why hasn't anybody reached out to me? That's the fun. We get to speculate on Silverball Chronicles. We get to make up all of the fun things that people have done. It's the best part. Don't, li- don't listen today. We're, we're not making up anything. <laughs> this is an historical <laughs> podcast. So, Ron, I want to jump into today's topic. This is one that our uh, cronies over on Patreon had voted for, and one that I have to say I didn't have much knowledge about at all. So I was really starting from scratch. Although you are a massive, massive expert at this topic. <laughs> Not particularly. Okay, so we're both kind of winging it here. Uh, well, I, I, <laughs> the individual in question, Mr. Wayne Nyans... Uh, Mm. I would see him every year at Pinball Expo. He was always at Pinball Expo. So uh, let's jump into today's topic. A centurion, as most people know, is uh, part of the Roman army during the classical period. A centurion was a commander, normally of an entire century or a military unit consisting of a hundred legionnaires. What does this have to do with our subject today our subject today is wayne nyan i think he meant centenarian like a person who's over a hundred years old oh centenarian centenarian so it's not centurion centurion no i don't know if wayne did any roman based um pinballs but so he wasn't around during the classical era he wasn't around during roman times he he didn't he didn't oh yeah this this whole episode has been typed out incorrectly oh i'm sorry all right, let's. We are going to wing it this month. We're just going to. This is this. Okay, okay. <clears throat> a centenarian is someone linked to longevity. Someone who has seen it all come and go and then once again be reinvented. Like bell bottoms coming and going and coming again and hopefully going. Wayne is Pinball's centenarian. He was there in the beginning of Pinball and he was there when it ended. A couple of times. 
and he witnessed the rebirth we now see today before his passing at age 104. He was the last of his pinball generation, the last of the wood rail masters and the man who gave his whole life to making people smile with the silver ball. Wayne made over 160 pinball machines throughout his career, which started in the 1930s and ended in the late 1970s. He frequented Chicago Expo every year well into his 90s. Join us this month as we discuss pinball's centenarian, Wayne Nyans. Finally, a full electromechanical episode. It's about time. Oh my god. People have wanted this. They've been emailing. Uh, the constant harassment we get in our Discord, uh, on Facebook. Uh, people have, have camped out in front of my home in rural Canada because they want to hear all about EMs. And, I, you know, to be totally honest, Ron, I actually love electromechanical machines. I love EM machines. I don't like working on them. Uh, I don't like cleaning gears and rotors and stepper motors and stuff like that. But I will say I really do like them, even though I do give them a hard time. What about you? Do you enjoy EMs? EMs rule. They are cool, right? They're a totally different animal. Bells and chimes, man. Bells and chimes. It's all about the finer skills that you get in pinball, right? The nudging, the the the, the slap saves, the poke in the cabinet with, you know, up in the high in the mid-range, like slapping the side of the cabinets. Like, it's totally a different game, right? How many EMs do you have? Uh, I have two EMs. And one of them is Prospector. Prospector. And one is the awesome Spanish Eyes. Spanish Eyes, right, from Williams, I think, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so you're on the dark side of EMs, because most EMs, when people talk about EMs, it, they tend to tilt towards sort of the Gottlieb era, and that's really where Wayne Nyans builds out his portfolio and his experience. But let's wind it all the way back. Let's start really at the beginning of Wayne Nyans' uh his life and this way we can understand why Wayne was the way he was because when we grow up in a certain uh, economic time or time period in general that is what reflects our vision of the world for the rest of our lives you were born in the in the late 70s right Ron uh early 70s <clears throat> <laughs> and so you really sort of came into your own and in, in what the the 80s and 90s during that sort of the Reagan years. Okay. Yeah, early 90s. Yeah. Reagan Bush yeah. era. Yeah. So you're you're you grew up in that recession back in that back in that time and high inflation and the world was coming to an end. So you probably look back very fondly of your childhood and you hate the world that it is today. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I hate the world that it is today. Exactly, exactly. Where where other generations would grow up very differently. So let's talk about Wayne from from really the, the the greatest generation. So he was born in 1918 in Mason City, Iowa. You know what 1918 was? That's when World War One ended. Oh my goodness, mm. you're right. Yes, exactly. He lived most of his life actually in Chicago. His father in Mason City, Iowa, was an industrial electrician. And he was killed on the job in 1929, which is catastrophic, absolutely terrible. 
So here's a great quote from Wayne, and it really sort of explains the world as it was at that time. So Wayne says, I was eight years old at the time. My sister was nine. There were no relatives in Mason City. So my mother decided to move to Chicago, where she had a sister and two half-brothers. You need family around you when you're in that condition. We had a pretty good insurance policy, and of course my mother invested in the stock market like everybody else in the 1928-29 era. And then of course, you know what happened. We were broke. Yikes. That is terrible. So, I mean, think about it, right? In that era, the sort of the man of the household was like the breadwinner, right? Like the man was the person who went out and the woman stayed home and took care of the family. And that was the world we lived in. It was sort of this post um, egalitarian uh, farmer type of, of, of society that was being built. In this time, everybody was doing the smart thing and saving for the future. And buying life insurance and having a life insurance policy at work was a big deal. And everybody knows my background as a, as a financial advisor here in Canada. And this is exactly what you should do in that type of situation is to be able to, to provide for your family. But in the crazy circumstances that were the, the crash and the inevitable depression that happened in the 1930s, this is heartbreaking. Yeah, we should mention that. The great stock market crash of 1929. That was inevitably what drove uh, a lot of change in society. Because over the next eight years, there, was, there were serious, serious troubles until the outbreak of World War II. So to make ends meet for his family in Chicago, Wayne sold newspapers. And that helped supplement his income as, most, as, as best as he could. That generation struggled. And it was because of things like this experience why they were so hard working. They always said yes to a job. They took every job they possibly could. And they did it to the best of their ability because jobs were hard to come by. In junior high school, Wayne took mechanical drawing. And he took that course in high school as well. Now graduating in the Great Depression meant that it was tough to find a job. So you took whatever job you could get. Wayne says... You were a little concerned about how you're going to make a living at that time. And making a living was utmost in my mind. Someone sent a notice around that a company wanted to hire draftsmen part-time. So, of course, I ran down and applied for the job. Not expecting to get it, because when I got there, there must have been 20 kids standing in front of the door, waiting for an interview. I got a call back and started work the next day. That was when Wayne was 17. What were you doing at 17, Ron? I was graduating from high school. Yeah, and you had no idea. You're like, ah, get a job, right? Ah, go to college. I'll do something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, I was uh, I was finishing up high school as well, and uh, I was going in to do an arts degree. So I was going to do writing and history and all that stuff, which is kind of where we get to do to this podcast. Then you started. Uh, you started to work at a maple syrup factory. <laughs> I had to do a Canada thing, you know. The, yes, I had to go to the I had to go to the syrup mines. Yes. The the maple mines of Shawinigan, Quebec. Shawinigan that's a great name. That is that is Canadian. <laughs> but I mean here at seventeen, he's kinda in high school, finishing up and he's like, I need a job right away and he's taking whatever job he can get with with the the skills that he got in, in high school. The man that interviewed him was Eric Bernander who was the chief engineer of the company he was interviewing at. He was hired, he was given a little room, that, and he worked under an individual named Lynn Durant. And that's a name we heard before. Do you remember who that was, Ron? 
Uh, he was the president of United Manufacturing. That's right. And he was also a very close friend of Harry Williams. And they worked and learned together uh, back in that day. Lynn was an old man at that time, as Wayne described him. He was 32 years old. So 32 is old. It compared to a 17-year-old getting his first job, he was an old man. What was the name of the company? The company was Western. Western had a million different names. It went by Western. It went by Western Supply and Equipment. It also went by Western Piano. It was like a million different things. And we'll get to that in just a minute. It was run by Jimmy Johnson. He was the big boss over there, and he oversaw all of the teams working under him. Now, do you want to describe the working conditions here, Ron, in the next little bit? Well, according to Wayne, he said in the back of the factory, there were cages with chicken wire and two-by-fours so the designers could have their own working space. But Western didn't have any room. Depression-style cubicles. Yeah, so this is like literally like depression-style cubicles, right? So when you're complaining about your your cubicles at, at work and uh, the open concept and all of that stuff, he, they literally had two-by-fours and chicken wire. But you know what? He had a job, and that's all that mattered, right? Didn't matter what the working conditions were. About a block away, there was a storage building with Western where they would store all their old uh, stuff. And one of the other designers by the name of Herb Breitenstein weaseled his way into getting his own office over there because they were hurting for so much space. Above this area, there was actually a loft where Jimmy Johnson had stored a bunch of old cabinets, and Herb had built a bed up there. Wayne says every once in a while, he'd come in drunk in the morning, and he'd invariably go up there and lay down and go to sleep. Jimmy Johnson would catch him sleeping, wake him up, get him going again. Herb was the character of the old group. Herb had a brother that worked at Bally as chief toolmaker over there. Western was full of characters. This is the story that I want to draw, is that this is a really, really fly-by-night, seat-of-your-pants, informal industry at the time, right? Like, let's draw the picture here that there's guys coming in drunk, sneaking up and having snaps up, uh, having naps up above the area where their boss comes in and gets them out. Like, it's, it's cubicles of chicken wire. And, like, it is it is not uh, today's modern st- modern stern. It's pretty, pretty weird. Uh, as mentioned, Western Equipment and Supply Company, or what we'll call them is just Western, they made novelty games. They were mostly flipperless or baseball games, skee-ball, one-ball type of games. And, Ron, they made the classics like, don't do it. Lino, races, parlay, air derby, and heyday. And being they were all made before 1947, they would definitely be flipperless. Exactly. And you love every one of those. I don't know. You know, parlay, I might have seen somewhere. Wow. That sounds familiar. Okay, what I did is I just took their biggest sellers and I just put them on a list here. And I yeah. thought, okay, this is... Because if you go to enough pinball shows, some of them, they will have like a 1930s section or the, the, the pre-war section, they call it. Yes. And I think I've seen a parlay before. Where all the all those old uh, sort of pre-war pins, they all kind of oddly smell like a barn? No. Because that was where they were probably, probably no. pulled out of. <laughs> 
the the coolest thing i think is at this time is turnover in staff is you're bringing in people seeing if they work they're moving on or they're moving up uh it was a really interesting spot to be and uh, this is when we kind of got into the idea of game design as opposed to just an engineer yeah wayne says we had maybe five or six designers in this little company and no one knew what they were doing in those days, nobody knew anything about building a game. People were looking for work. They'd come into the factory. They'd be interviewed. And what do you do? Well, I'm a designer. And they worked there a month or so, and then they'd fire them. This went on all the time. There was no uh, shortage in people willing to work for any wage. So you could bring anybody in, see if they worked, if they didn't work well or they didn't know what they were doing, you just throw them out because there were like a dozen other people banging on the door for a job. It's crazy to think about that type of situation where the employer held so much power over the employee. Now, Lynn Durant, he was working on an EM slot machine when Wayne started. He was trying to find a way to compete with the one-armed bandit style of slot machine. I don't know what that is. It just means it's got the, the thing on the side you pull down. Yeah, the pull thing. Yeah, you pull the thing and the, and the little wheels spin and whatever, and then it lands on something and it pays you out. It's, it's the classical slot machine. I'm not big into, you know, gambling machines because it's more fun to compete. Yeah. <laughs> Pinball games yeah. are games yeah. of skill. Games of skill. And I know that because I've heard of, of Roger Sharp. Uh, Lynn Durant was an electrical engineer. Now, did he have a degree? I don't entirely know. I wasn't able to find that information. And Wayne wasn't even sure if he had an electrical degree. But nonetheless, he was an electrical engineer in the 1930s. You know, Lynn didn't last long. He was laid off by Jimmy Johnson because he was paid too much. Got like that as a reason. He went to Exhibit Supply where he linked up with Harry Williams on games such as Lightning. I think he had seven magnets under the play field that messed with the ball. Oh, very original. And Harry Mabs would move in and out of Western at this time. So it seems like Western was a place where all these big names were at one point and then just passed through. Well, it sounds like people got fired a lot there. Yeah, that's... Jimmy Johnson that's, sounds like he was an interesting dude. Yeah, and we'll get into that. You know, what about pinball? Like, did they make pinball at this time in Chicago at Western? Well, they had no idea what pinball even was. And Western was basically trying to make anything that made money. Quite literally anything. Wayne tells an amazing story about how they tried to uh, design a skee-ball game, which was a bit of a copy of another skee-ball game from another manufacturer. And they ordered all of this wood paneling to make cabinets. And because they couldn't sell enough machines, Jimmy Johnson basically just wood paneled his entire house on the inside because they had so much extra wood. They literally threw everything at the wall, no pun intended, to make money. Why? Why didn't they make pinball machines? Pinball machines were banned in Chicago at this time. They were outlawed. So they didn't grow up with pinball machines like some of the designers in the next generation. Wayne was great at drafting part-time, but he wanted a full-time job. So when he was finished his drafting work, he'd lace cable or run cable for machines, stock shells, anything to get enough hours for a full-time wage. And so in 1930... That's crazy. So in 1937, he created the Free Play Unit. Wayne Nyans creates the free play unit. And what do I actually mean by the free play unit, Ron? At the age of 19, he manipulated and updated a GM laboratory stepper unit. That way the switches would work and reset for free play, free credit. 
Yeah, you would you he literally created a way for an EM machine to give you a free game, which I would say revolutionized the industry, but nobody really gives any credit for that. So Wayne took that work. Oh, Jimmy Johnson. What did Jimmy have to say about that? Jimmy, of course, was a difficult person to deal with, but he probably knew that he was there were certain ways to make money. So he shows the unit to Jimmy. Jimmy's like, I don't think it's going to work. So he's like, well, put it in a machine. So he puts it in a machine and it works fine. Then Jimmy says, this is, this is a quote. So Jimmy says, engineers look at all this stuff and poo-poo it all the time. It'll never work. No one will ever play that game. So uh, later, Jimmy calls the president of GM Laboratories, who Western were buying all of their stepper units from. This executive shows up and gives Wayne Nyans $50. He signed away the rights, the patent, to the free play stepper unit for $50 in 1937. Wayne would say he was making 30 cents an hour, so $50 was a lot of money. Probably could have bought a car or something with that much money. Oh my God, what would $50 be in the 1930s? Holy moly. Now, Western was also notorious for copying games because they were trying to get any product out as fast as they possibly could. Yeah. So one day, they got a game from a distributor in the afternoon so they could look it over. And that's when Jimmy came in with a request. Wayne says, At Western, we used to copy everything that everyone else made. One night, Jimmy told us that we were going to work overtime. We were going to copy a game. We worked all night, three or four guys. We copied a game absolutely piece by piece, made each part, wired it, had a game in the morning, and we shipped that game back out, back to the distributor. It was amazing. (laughs) So it's like in the afternoon, they get a game from a distributor. They bring it into one end of the factory. They literally copy it from end to end, and they get that game back to the distributor the next morning before they realize they had enough time to copy it. Like, that's pretty amazing stuff if you think about the effectiveness of Wayne and those around him. I take it they weren't very litigious back then. People just ripping (laughs) off other people's games. Now, oddly enough, Western went bankrupt two times while Wayne was there. After the second time, there were only three people left in the factory with Wayne, and they basically redesigned a baseball game to keep the company afloat, and they got it out the door. Jimmy, apparently, spent most of that time upstairs smoking cigars. Wayne went to Jimmy Johnson for a raise after, you know, all of his work and was offered a 2.5 cents more an hour. What does that mean? Uh, 2.5 How do you have a 0.5 cents? Two, two, two and a half. Two and a half cents. Oh, okay. Wait a minute. What's half a cent? I'm still confused. <laughs> Wow, exactly. Jimmy Johnson was interesting. I don't know, you round you round down, I guess. I don't know. Do you like you get to 2 hours and it's 5 cents, I guess. One of Wayne's coworkers was making 5 cents more. That's terrible. 5 cents more? So Wayne walked off the job. 19 years Man. old, he said enough of this and walked out. That, he had to be pretty brave to leave a a full-time position in the middle of the Great Depression. Uh, that's pretty scary. Apparently, he took the streetcar home, and uh, when he was going down a street, it went by Genko, and he thought that he should stop in and see who was there. Maybe there was a position for him. There was a uh, streetcar stop a couple of blocks up, and he got off, and he started walking back to Genko, and that's when he noticed Gottlieb was on the same street as well. So, because it was closer, 
He stopped there first. Wayne was interviewed for 10 minutes, and he was hired at 10 cents more than he was making at Western. I could see how that interview probably went. Walk in like, yes, I built all these games. Like, you're hired immediately. (laughs) Yes, I know how to use a soldering iron. Wayne says, I get on a streetcar to go home, and I get off the streetcar and start walking up to our apartment, and there was Jimmy Johnson sitting in his big old Lincoln. He spotted me. He gets out of his car, comes over, and he says, what's the matter with you, kid? You know what you're leaving me for? He called me nothing but trouble. He's yelling at me in the street and giving me the sales pitch to come back. Yeah, he's putting on the charm offensive, right? Apparently, Jimmy Johnson was really tall, really big-shouldered, huge guy. Yeah, he's probably he's probably quite the charmer when he needs to be. That charmer. He's, probably, he's just strong-arming him. So apparently, Wayne would uh, sleep all night, uh, have a conversation with his mother about why did he leave the job? He should go back. You know, it's a good wage. What's cra- You're crazy. But he did, ev- he did pass, and he returned to Gottlieb the next morning. But by 2 o'clock in the afternoon... Dave Gottlieb tapped him on the shoulder, and he turned around to have a very weird conversation. Wayne says, I never met Dave. I knew he was Gottlieb himself. And Dave says, you Wayne Nyans? I said, yeah. And he said, you work for Jimmy? He's up in my office, and he's telling me I should fire you. What happened? Oh, my. Like I said, this, this, guy, is, uh, this guy is something. He's a class act. So, of course, Wayne tells Dave Gottlieb the whole story. Dave is this young kid who desperately needs a job. His former employer is a hard ass, and he's, he's, he's fighting to get him back to the point of, I'm going to make sure that this kid doesn't have a job anywhere, so the only place he can work is for me. And he goes to this new employer and tries to cost him that job. Well, I think Dave Gottlieb knew what kind of person Jimmy Johnson was. Uh, He probably had a reputation. Because Dave Gottlieb tells Wayne, all right, I'll tell you what. You never have to worry about a job. As long as I own this company, you have a job. So Wayne says, from that moment on, him and I were friends. And I could walk in his office and talk to him. And I did many, many times because we were friends. We became close and he was truly a man of his word. That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? To think about like uh, Gary Stern coming down and like covering for somebody for their entire career you know david gottlieb himself what a stand-up amazing individual he must have been we're getting into the 1940s and in 1941 the united states enters world war ii uh a little bit late but that's okay we don't hold that against you and uh wayne like many people were off to war when wayne came back on leave at the end of the war There were a lot of people in the service, and they were letting them out slowly because you just can't let an entire army, you know, into the streets. You got to sort of slowly reintegrate them back into society. Basically, each person got their turn getting out of the military. This is one of the most interesting things I found. Wayne says... I came back to Gottlieb while I leave, and I went in the office, and there was Homer Capehart sitting in the office with Dave Gottlieb, both of them smoking cigars and talking the world over. So Homer Capehart was the uh, manufacturer of record players and a U.S. senator from Indiana. Hey guys, as a quick heads up, I wanted to let you know that in my real life, I'm David the Advice Guy. At Dennis Financial, we aren't investment advisors or insurance agents. I always thought that sounded terrible. We want to provide you with sound financial advice. In fact, we want to provide you with investment and insurance advice for life. 
and we take that honor very seriously. Do you know individuals who received financial advice for 10 years have two times the financial assets of unadvised individuals? For example, you've got mortgage insurance at the bank, right? Well, did you know a 40-year-old non-smoker can save $30 a month every month for 20 years just from shopping around for a more competitive rate? Now, just imagine what a pinhead like you could do with that extra money. Toppers and shooter rods, anyone? If you're looking for a more human dimension to your financial advice, Dennis Financial Inc. has you covered with advisors licensed in most Canadian provinces. Contact me via email at david at dennisfinancial.net for a free rate quote and a copy of our Value of Advice ebook, or check out dennisfinancial.ca. Insurance solutions provided by Dennis Financial Inc., Canadian residents only. Ah, the metropolis of Indiana. So David asked me when I was coming back to work. And I said, well, as soon as they let me out, you know how the army is. They don't move very fast now that the war is over. There's millions of men that have to be classified and sent home. Dave looks at Homer. Homer looks at Dave. A week later, I was out of the army. I don't know who did what, but I was out of the army in one week. (laughs) That's an awesome story. I think the whole senator part probably helped him there. Good job, Homer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, but but that just goes to show you how valuable Wayne Nyans was to David Gottlieb that he he literally did whatever he could to ensure that that he was out of the military and back into the business and designing and building and and working. It's pretty amazing. Um Wayne was moved into the engineering department at this time and he worked under Harry Mabs, who was the inventor of the flipper from the Humpty Dumpty pinball machine. And he built test fixtures. And, and what was a test fixture? Uh, a fixture that tests things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was like a, a thing that would test like a like a pop bumper. And it would just hit the pop bumper over and over and over yeah. and over. Or, uh, you know, the flipper mech. I believe Steve Ritchie started doing similar things, building test, test fixtures. Exactly. So it's like you're cycling things over and over and over again to see how long that they will go until they break. In 1947... During this time, in, um, um, in 1947, during his time in engineering, Wayne would invent and patent another big item, and that was the pop bumper switch. And the reason that was a big deal, because up to that point, the pop bumper switches of the time had a carbon ring with a stem going into it. And every time the stem made contact with the carbon, there was an arc and fire. This would gradually burn the carbon away. Pretty soon, the carbon would wear away completely and fall out, and the pop bumper was dead, and it wouldn't work anymore. So he was uh, efficient at building test fixtures and solving problems and making things better, and he proved himself over and over. During this time, he was so efficient that he actually had spare time. In that spare time, he decided to start trying to design his own game, and that game became College Days. D-A-Z-E. Days. Z. Dead with a Z. Z. Oh, is that a Canadian thing? The Z thing? It's an English thing. But it's a... Because we're speaking English. It's the letter Z. Why why do you say Z? It's a Z. It's the letter Z. It's the letter... It's like ZZ Top. Okay. The Nissan 350Z. Hmm. A Z06 Corvette. No? Weird. Very weird. This is the football nostalgia theme. This is from August of 1947. It sells 2,230 units, designed by Wayne Nyans and art by Roy Parker. 
This was a side project which took two years to complete. And then in 1949, Wayne actually would release this with three other games. So this is a wood rail game, which is uh, an old style kind of maple cabinet with all the wood edges and stuff. It doesn't look anything like uh, the modern uh, pinball machines that we would know today, nor does it look anything like even the machines in the 1970s. I mean, it looks like a pinball machine. It's just made out of wood. It's just got wood rails. Significantly different. I mean, it's still a play field. And... Yeah, it's got flippers, mm-hmm. right? So he came in in the post-flipper era. He never made really any... He didn't design any games that were flipperless. Now, this game was originally called College Days with a D-A-Y-S. But Roy Parker, the artist, decided to change it to D-A-Z-E. Or Z. Z for everyone else, yes. Wayne would say that Parker was very sharp, smart, and comical, and he had an eye for marketing, which is why they played the fun college days play on words. So what are we looking at here? Well, there's a flyer. Even in 1949, there is a flyer. Even back then. Are you going to read this for like a a 1940s guy? What's a 1940s guy? Like, there's razzle-dazzle, galloping gridiron action, and Gottlieb's new college days. Is that that it? Like like the news, the old, uh, what, newsreels? Kick off to a big season with Gottlieb's T-formation. Terrific appeal. Top earnings. Blocking action. Player blocks out 11 men. Bumpers and lights. Clock lights up and scrolling positions. Triple in value. When 11 men are blocked out and the second time of the same game, bottom rollovers and two kickout pockets light up to indicate special award possibilities. Wow, I think we have a new talent for you. You're the newsreel guy now. <laughs> Is that me? What's new? Fifth ball special scoring gives all players a chance to come from behind and achieve a winning score. Pop bumpers with original flippers, of course. Interesting they don't have anything on it that says for amusement only or... They didn't have, it didn't look like they have the, um, it is more fun to compete yet or any of that stuff. Yeah, no, not at all. And this is very much a football-y theme, right? Like it is, this is a thing, this is a cultural thing in America that I don't think um, the rest of the world really understands. Like most of us like football, but it's really like this odd cultural thing for you. This whole um, college football cheerleading band, marching band thing. That's really what they're playing on with this with this game. We have light box scoring. We don't have reels yet. No reels. So this is like a light turns on when you move up points. Yep. Across the top, it's got like a one, a two, a three, a four, and a five on the back glass. And under it says million. So whenever that's lit, that's one million, two million, three million. And then you've got 10 all the way up to 900 for the thousands. Yeah, I do like that. Even in the 40s, we had millions scoring. Everyone thinks that's yeah. like a later thing. Like, no, they had millions scoring in the 40s. The, the play field itself is also very cool. Um, it's symmetrical, so the left looks exactly like the right. It has three three dead bumpers at the top, two pop bumpers in the middle. And the pinball just sort of kind of falls down the play field. And then there's two flippers pointing outwards. So they're not like we have today that flip up. Yeah. They flip yeah, out. Not in the traditional position a neat looking little machine and the art i think is is very cool it's got these like cheerleaders with the what do they call those like the megaphone things yeah i guess that's a megaphone yeah before before it was like electronic electronic, yeah 
Yeah, really cool little little game here. Um, I I think this is a this is a winner, very much a winner. And by the sales numbers of two thousand two hundred and thirty units, that seems like a lot. That's a lot for that era, and especially for um, a first game. I mean, anybody would would be pretty excited for for two thousand units nowadays. And it, I think it's a a big big winner. But to give you an idea, Harry Mavs, he built he had twelve games he designed in nineteen forty nine. Yeah, <laughs> twelve games. Yeah. yeah, could you imagine like uh, some you know somebody coming in with three games in one year? I don't know. That seems pretty amazing. But Harry Mavs like ah, hold my beer. So in this era, speaking of um, numbers of games, Wayne Nyans had three games in nineteen forty nine. So I guess when you said this game plus three, that was incorrect. It's actually just three. Yeah, that's right. Okay. In 1950, he had five. 51, he had seven. In 52, he had 11. In 53, he had nine. And then in 1954, he did 19 different games. In, in, in a 12-month period. That is, that is pretty nutty, man. And with most of these games selling between 800 and 1,400 units. And, and some of them, as you would imagine, had very similar features and layouts. See, that was the thing in this era is that you could kind of get away with, with recycling some ideas. Barry Ausler kind of gets crap for replacing his long lumbering um, ramps that kind of sweep across from the left to the right or the right to the left. Somebody like Pat Lawler kind of recycles the bottom. Th- the double in lanes. But these guys literally would be like, well, I'm going to put the, uh, the three drop target bank on the left side of the play field. And that's an entirely different game. Well, Wayne says, sometimes I'd build it from scratch. Sometimes I'd cobble up something from a previous game, take a bottom pane and a light box, and then I'd take a playboard and make a new game out of it. I always had five, six, or seven games ahead of the line. Holy moly. <laughs> like five, five or six games ahead of time. Like, uh, there's rumors that Keith Elwin is like three games ahead, and that seems outrageous. But this guy's five or six or seven. Now, we're not going to go through every single game he ever released because, I mean, as you can see, that that will be a serious undertaking. That would be an eight-hour podcast. But, I mean, if the top-level cronies want it, maybe we can make something special just for them. Yeah. yeah. No? (laughs) Okay, that will be the platinum. That's the $100 Patreon if you want that. So, So what we'll do is we'll pick out a few games along the way that I think are high points in Wayne's career. Another one, I think, is Four Horsemen. The Four Horsemen from September 1950, 1,800 units. All of these games, almost 100% of them, are Wayne Nyans, obviously, designing, and Roy Parker. They work together quite regularly on their designs. This is another sports football theme. Uh, Again, a, a, a favorite for Wayne. It is the Four Horsemen, which... I don't know, were people probably a big deal? It was, I can't remember if it was a college team or a pro team, but there was four particular players, and they were the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So they were the four Uh. horsemen. And I I would assume that's what it's based on. So it's almost like a licensed theme, kind of. But we're not paying anybody for their likenesses. Experts predict season winner, the four horsemen. The most (laughs) amazing scoring combination. In game history, action-packed football thriller produced by Gottlieb. Four ways to win. 
One point scoring. Oh, no, that's one, as in the first thing. Oh, there are four ways to win. Four ways to win. Point scoring. Backfield sequence. Numbered sequence. High score. Four pop bumpers. Flippers. Relay rollovers. So they're really going with the four. There's like four of everything. Four of everything. Very, mm-hmm. very smart. It has the flippers pointed in the right direction, although yeah. they are very far apart. This makes a flipper gap look like nothing to complain about. It also has at the top of the playfield another set of flippers. Four flippers. Uh-huh. Four horsemen. And it has a center post. So you bump the center post. This one's all this is a nudger's dream. If you love to nudge, this is where it's at. But you are losing balls like crazy. But you got five of them, right? You got five balls. That's no big deal. Looking at it with that center post, I think you could save a lot of balls. You think so? I think so. I'm so bad at nudging. I, w- I don't think I'd be able to. Look at the flyer again. They, look at the flyer again. They have one cool line at the end. Uh, yeah, I like the one line they have at the bottom of the flyer. Get out in front at the kickoff. <laughs> Order from your distributor now. Gottlieb always, I, I think, had amazing marketing at this time. Again, they're not as cheesy as the Williams marketing back in the day, but it's well, still makes according you smile. to the flyer, it says there is a blocking gate and it assures extended ball action. So I wonder if something pops up to actually block that from draining. Hmm. Let's look under the playfield. A cool feature we, we don't even realize. Yeah, so if you swing over to IPDB, you can see all of these games if you search for the name. And yes, it does. Oh, look at yes. That. It has an actual full. It's not even a, a gate. I would call it like a, almost like a, a lane guy type thing that pops up in front so you can't lose the ball. It's like a piece of metal that pops up from a coil. Through That's a slot in slick. the play field. Yeah. See, there you go, right? Like, uh, shout out to uh, the in- Internet Pinball Database for archiving a lot of this really cool stuff. IPDB.org. One of the games that popped up a, a lot when... Um, I was doing some of the research was Niagara. Oh, Niagara Falls. This is an international landmark tourist trap theme. It is from December of 1951. It sells 1,200 units. Niagara Falls, Ontario is a Canadian city around the famous waterfalls of the same name. It is linked to the United States by the Rainbow Bridge. It's on the site of Niagara River's western shore that overlooks the Horseshoe Falls, the Cascade's most expansive section. Elevators can take visitors to a lower, wetter vantage point to view behind the falls, a cliffside park, which features a beautiful promenade, and even underwater caverns, which were originally used to generate power. And if you love to go to all those crappy tourist places to buy stuff from China with Niagara Falls written on it, this is your town. Wow. Have you been to Niagara Falls? Uh, no. You haven't been to Niagara Falls? No. Isn't the Canadian side the better The better side? It, it, everything on the Canadian side is always better. Oh, oh, okay. I think it's like five hours from me. So the way, like on the Canadian side, you can see the falls, right? Like you're looking into the falls, where on the American side, you're kind of looking across... Uh, to the Canadian side, which is just kind of a city in a forest. But it is actually a very cool place. And when you see the uh, the falls themselves, they are like impressive. The time that I the, the time that I always think when I've when I've been to Niagara Falls is if you can imagine being like the discoverers who are rowing or going up 
the St. Lawrence River and they're trying to find a connection across North America. And then they get to this and they're like, ah, shit. <laughs> that's, that's always what I imagine. Or they're going down the one way and they don't see the falls to the last second. Like, oh no, paddle the other way. Wayne loved those bingo machines that were very popular around this time. He loved them because of their complexity. And he wanted to bring some of those interesting, complex ideas to his pinball design. So that's where he came up with the ideas that were implemented in Niagara. The idea was that in the center of the playfield, there are like these captive saucers. And if you get a ball into those captive saucers, the ball stays there and increases your score by 500,000. The idea was that it is sort of like Niagara Falls. You're falling in to these captive holes. This caused a lot of fighting among some of the other designers and engineers. He was breaking out of the mold. Wayne says, the other designers were saying, why lose the ball up the middle of the play field? Why lose the ball in an out hole up top? We'll never play the game. Dave Gottlieb was sitting up on a stool. He always came in and sat on my stool. He very seldom said much, and he was pretty quiet. All the rest of the guys were arguing, and sometimes you get a little heated, and they want to change this, change that. One day he says, all right, everybody out. Then he says to me, you do anything you want, and that's the way it's going to be built. At that point, I had supreme power, and I used it. Ooh, could you imagine having supreme power? So you basically had the owner of the company just saying, do whatever you want. Flippers are kind of back into where they should normally be. The honeymoon is on for operators of Gottlieb's Niagara. It's a torrent of action, swirling speed. So they call it, okay, their name for it is the ball trap. Everybody falls for new ball trap. When balls are trapped, pop bumpers light for points scoring. Trapping four balls awards one replay. Ball trap speeds play, increases earnings. So here's the thing, right? You get you lose that ball, you go through your five balls faster, which is good for the operator, right? Mm-hmm. It's pretty smart. What are they? Two, four pop bumpers, two flippers, two cyclonic bumpers create flashing speed ball action. Immediate delivery. Order today. It's a beautiful looking pin. The back glass is is gorgeous. It's like Niagara Falls has this um, weird um, nostalgia of uh, romance and honeymoons and things like that, right? Where the heart-shaped uh, jacuzzi tub, right? That's kind of the Niagara thing. It's got a wonderful back glass. It's got a, a, a 19, you know, 40s, 50s couple kissing in front of the falls. It has all of these silly characters. There's one person who's type rope walking across the falls. Just a wonderful back glass. What do you think? Yeah, that's a classic Roy, Roy Parker. The characters would always be doing something. You, you have to really look at these back glasses to see all the different stuff going on. Like, there's a lot of stuff going on, and itself is kind of interesting, right? Like, it's not just a backlash. It's like, it's it's fun. It's it's joyful. It's just wonderful. I love it. Absolutely love it. And the play field itself is beautiful as well. It's, it's a very similar scene, but there's a, a fellow with a barrel. That's the, that's the thing, right? Is the guy in a barrel falling off the falls. And there's all of these characters, again, hidden in the play field. Just beautiful. 
I understand why people, I think, love these wood rails. What about Queen of Hearts? This was Wayne Nyan's favorite game that he made. This was a uh, playing card theme from December of 1952. Sells 2,200 units. And with these, it's primarily, if you notice, instead of our, our previous episodes where we got, you know, the designer was, the sound person was, the, this, it's basically these games, the designer is so-and-so and the artist is so-and-so. Yeah, they're, bang, they're bagging out 12 games a year. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they're not changing it up too often. Now, there's a back glass error in this one. If you look at it, like the back glass is pretty risque. It's like a queen. Her midriff is showing. She's wearing a very short skirt, which is unusual for Gottlieb, but they went there on this occasion. The error on this back glass the is seven of clubs. seven of clubs actually has eight clubs, eight clubs on, on it. it. Whoops. Whoops. Queen of Hearts with five brand new drop-through ball trap holes. Basically gobble holes. Gottlieb deals you another winning hand. Very nice, very nice. This is the game that and I mentioned before. This is Wayne's favorite game. He loved this game because he loved the, the concept of the gobble holes. He loved the idea of building a hand in the middle of the play field he he enjoyed the pop bumper action at the top two dead bumpers three pop bumpers he really liked the geometry and the the code if you will it's it's a fun looking game i'm not into the card playing games it doesn't really appeal to me i mean they're fun is a very used theme in pinball especially in this time right it was you know men and women and playing cards and having people over for a dinner party and playing cards was a thing they didn't have board games really at this time so so cards was the board game of choice at the time roy parker's very risque when it comes to this theme that was not really a a, a topic that happened all the time the, the risqueness was not a big, big thing at Gottlieb. They got away with it this time. Roy Parker was an artist who worked for ad posters, and he did art almost exclusively for Gottlieb from the 1930s until his death in 1966. He was an introverted person and never really played pinball, but he was humorous and fun with those he knew. Parker would often come into uh, Gottlieb with artwork for his games where the women were depicted in you know, maybe a little bit too revealing clothing or suggestive themes. And that's when Dave Gottlieb would tell Parker to tone it down a bit, is what he would always say. And Parker would just take out a pen or pencil right there and fix or edit that artwork. He was often described by those who worked with him as a wonderful artist and so cooperative. He worked and never complained, even when his art was criticized by the designers or David Gottlieb. It just rolled off his back. Some artists uh, are very, very sensitive with their art. Well, Wayne says, you got to be careful how you criticize an artist. You know, you can't tell him or her that that's too much of this or the legs are too long. You got to be very careful. But not uh, Roy. Roy was a consummate professional. He just said, yeah, sure, you're paying my paychecks. I'll make the change. No big deal. Especially during this era, Ron, there was always a lot of legal jeopardy for the pinball industry. Wayne was even sometimes called to testify at various trials around pinball. Was it a game of skill? Was it a gambling device? 
Was it a thing to indoctrinate the youth of America into satanic worship? Well, we never will find out what the answer to that is. Oh, it definitely corrupts youth, 100%. Wayne would actually say, one day, while I was designing a game, the telephone rang, and it was the woman at the switchboard. She says, there's a man out here to see you. I thought, uh-oh, nobody comes to see me. Then... When he went downstairs, there was a government agent waiting for him. When was the last time a government agent visited you, Ron? Back in my mob trial. Me and Michael Corleone. Yeah. Yes. Now, was Bruce Nightingale from the Slam Tilt podcast, your other podcast, was he involved in that as well? Because I know he has strict Italian heritage. Um, I am going to plead the fifth. Uh, Very good. Well played. Very Italian of you. Oh, oh. So, hey, so I'm this offended. government. As an Italian, I'm offended. You take that back now. I'm offended that you're offended. Yes. This is offensive. So, so Wayne, uh, he would be whisked away to testify at a trial about, uh, you know, a game being a, a game of, of chance, uh, how the game, you know, rewards replays. And this would happen quite regularly through the 1950s as you know, states tried to figure out what to do with pinball. And a way to get around some of those rules was something that was a wonderful invention and something that really changed the industry, especially for Gottlieb, which was called Add-A-Ball. What, how does an Add-A-Ball work? Uh, you add a ball. So if you have five-ball game, you do something skillful in the game and you get another ball. Another ball you can play. Ah, so you have to do, so it, so you, it requires you to do something. It requires skill. Right, it just doesn't happen magically. Earn an add-a-ball, see. So instead of um, playing the game and getting a free play, you would just add a ball to your current game, and you could play indefinitely. If you're good enough, yeah. Yeah. On a business trip to Texas and Wisconsin, Alvin Gottlieb, the son of David Gottlieb, he heard from the distributors that they weren't selling enough product. Now, in those states, free play was illegal. They needed something to move around the law. And that inevitably became Attaball. Wayne was given the project, and he had to come up with a way around free play illegality. And that was when he came up with Flipper. And by free play, we mean winning a free game. I don't think the games were ever on free play back then. No. No. Flipper is named after the fantastic dolphin that everybody knows. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> the show that didn't exist yet, it's named after. Do you do a very good Flipper impression? I, I don't speak dolphin. No. Uh. I'm sorry. Uh, Flipper from 1960. They call it Flipper, Flipper. This is a magic theme. So no, I'm sorry, it's not a dolphin theme. The theme that we all want. Flipper. This is from November of 1960. It sells 1,100 units. Flipper is the first add-a-ball machine, and it was introduced as a concept again to extend play. Until this game was made, David Gottlieb was of the firm opinion that nothing would replace winning a free game. In fact, prior to this game, he had halted 
the project multiple times on extended play concepts because he was unsatisfied with the development. Gottlieb's 1960 Dancing Dolls was the first extended play prototype. It was never manufactured. Well, Alvin Gottlieb told IPDB, the Internet Pinball Database, that after he played Wayne's first finished production model, a flipper, he decided to try to get it approved in some foreign markets where a free play was considered a thing of value that made it part of gambling. Sir Infestian's Mondial Company, I know I butchered that, managed to get it approved in France and Italy, and the rest is history. There's a whole thing here about how they were able to actually get Adaball to be approved in Italy. They had to change the backglass lights because you couldn't you couldn't win a thing of value. So they had to make it seem like it was less valuable. It was very weird. But there's a whole there's a whole thing in there and in the interest of time, I'm not going to go into that because I mean, there's only five people that are listening to this podcast that care anything about Italy. Hey. Hey, I'm talking about Italy. Mhm. This also would start around the same time as the wedge head era. So what am I talking about when I say a wedge head? It's the shape of the back box. Yes, it's the shape of a wedge. So during the run of Flipper, Gottlieb began rolling out a new cabinet design. And this was changing from the standard wood rail sides and square back boxes to cabinets with metal side rails and wedge-style back boxes. According to IPDB, there are 415 wood rail versions of Flipper and 685 wedge head versions. Why did they make the change in the head design? Why did they make this massive change? Well, Wayne Nyan says, when the game Flipper came on location, we soon heard complaints about side-by-side -side games. It was hard to keep the games in line and separated, so there was room for two pairs of hands. The answer became obvious. We needed to increase the size of the light box on single-player games. I believe that Roman Garbark, head of a mechanical engineering at Gottlieb, came up with the wedgehead design. You had them like bumping into each other because the, the wood rails actually extend beyond the sides of the cabinet. You're going to have... You're going to be able to fit less of them there. Get your hands in there. You hit each other. Yeah. That, so this, this is the thing. Ron, it's taken 13 years. 13 years before they redesign a cabinet because they noticed they had a problem when they were sitting next to each other. That seems amazing to me. Hey. Now, obvious. They must have known they had problems before, but they just, I guess it wasn't a big enough problem. Maybe there wasn't enough locations that had multiple games. Ever think of that? Ah. Did you ever think of that, Sonny? Because if you just have single games, like in a, I don't know, what kind of places would they have then? A drugstore? Like a pharmacy? Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> we both went for the same place, but yeah. It's pretty amazing it would take 13 years to come up with that. I, I find that mind-blowing. I'm sure there were other minor changes with cabinets as far as you know, automatic ball loaders, as far as manual ball loaders, yeah. coin, coin doors probably changed, that kind of stuff. Now, Williams would not be outdone as they also tried to innovate their designs in the 1960s. So something around this time prompted people to say, hey, we need to make some changes here. One of their machines would be darts, followed by Viking and Jungle, and of course a few others. They were called a reverse wedge. Their heads were generally the same size, but in the front, there was a shelf where you could place a drink yeah, I've seen those. In front of the coin door. Yep. 
Yeah, and their wedge heads were literally wedge heads just turned upside down. <laughs> it's just different. They just like, boop, okay. It's not the same. It was the game Hollywood in 1961 where Williams moved to a wider head to make more room for people's hands once the wedge head design had been proven to be a superior style. Gottlieb was the innovator and, as we've said many times in this uh, podcast, the Cadillac of the industry. As Wayne would say, our games worked. We had a system of trying everything out we had in our boiler room. We had a steel vault in which we put everything in and ran everything on test relays. We ran them endlessly. They ran for months on end with a relay operating this one, operating that one, which operate this one. Then when one would drop off, we'd start all over again and run again and just run like that for weeks and months on end. They went on and on and on and on until they literally failed. 60 years later, Stern has the same room. They have a room where they do the same thing. They'll just have different mechs in there and they will run them 24-7. It must be really loud in there. Yeah, actually, yeah, when you say that, it probably is. This brings us to Wayne's probably most famous game slick chick slick chick gobble holes this is the electromechanical game which is a uh what kind of theme is this it's like barbershop quartet with women with bunny ears i i don't i don't know but not only do we have the uh, wedge heads now we now have real scoring yes which is a big big deal it's an it's an it's an interesting thing. So no more millions, folks. No, no, we can't do the million score because we're not making that many reels. Yes. So this sells four thousand five hundred and fifty units. A massive seller. Mm. What does the flyer say about this wonderful game? Oh, what does it say, Ron? I mean, it must have did a good job if it sold that many. Gottlieb's Slick Chick, and they even have the name printed out the way it is on the game. Which is like an X. So there's pop bumpers yeah. in the shape of an X. Each one of them is a letter. Featuring new playboard auto clamp. I wonder if that it probably means you can't lift the play field up. It's probably a lockdown, but like the lock mechanism. New maximum security door lock. New double size cash box for all those earnings right there. New front door styling. New front molding clamp. A lot of cabinet upgrades with this particular game. New lockdown bar, modern style yeah. coin door. And I'm thinking that might be another reason they sold so many of them. Operators liked all these new features. Okay. Uh, all right. Where do I start? The top here? Yes. Okay. Becoming a pro crony is the perfect way to say thanks. And it starts at $3 a month. Want to get early access to episodes before everyone else? Have a strange love for stickers? Do you know what a Discord is? Interested in having your comments and questions take priority on our episodes? Jump on! Wait a minute, this is on twice, idiot. Oh boy, uh, you get what you pay for, I guess. All right, hold on. Jump on at $6 a month, premium crony. Want all the other perks and a shirt after three months? Join us at 20 bucks a month as an elitist crony. Wow. Uh, can I have my money now? kind of before the major coin door, right? This isn't the first game by any means, but just to, to describe it for people, it was like, you know, those old uh, quarters or loonies that you would put into a washing machine, right? You'd put it in the little thing and you'd push it in and it would go, 
This is more of your now modern day coin chute where you'd put it in and it falls into the bottom and, and clicks the switch. Originally, this game was called Party Girls, which was a bit of a risque name based on uh, David Gottlieb, and he wanted a better name. So Wayne went off to figure out what the heck he was going to call this game. And one Sunday night, he went to a friend's house for dinner, and he saw around the corner a big sign for a new restaurant, which was opening, called Slick Chick. So Wayne says, that sign must have been 10 foot high. So when I went to Gottlieb the next day, I put it on the game and called it Slick Chick. There you go. Boom. Most people talk about code in pinball, especially nowadays, the lack of code or the quality of code or multipliers or this and that. So EMs, they did have code. It was very different than today. I wouldn't say they had code. It's mechanic. There's no, when I think of code, I think of like programming and something written. It had steppers and yeah, motors and but steppers. It, it, the and way relays. it would work is that you had objectives and things to do. Slick Chick stood out because it had an interesting style of play. So we mentioned before that the pop bumpers spelling slick and uh, the other set of pop bumpers spelling chick were in the formation of an X. And this was important because you had to spell out slick chick, but it had to be done in order. So when you would hit a pop bumper, it lights up. And if you hit that pop bumper again, it unlights. So the pop bumpers all had to be spelled in order to win a free play. I'm trying to remember. Were they, were they pop bumpers or dead bumpers? Uh, I think I they're know. dead bumpers. Because if they were pop bumpers, wouldn't that be hard? Oh, to... yeah. No, they would be dead bumpers. That's right. They were just Because if they were pop bumpers, you'd have the light off on, off on, off on. <laughs> that would like never work. Yeah, they're dead bumpers. So it goes up, it hits the bumper, it turns on, and it comes down. And it is a beautiful play field. It's got this creepy rabbit in the middle. Yeah, he is creepy. That's it's, it, And then next to him are these like ladies with these weird bunny hats, but they're like bunny hats your grandmother would like knit you. Is chick like a slang word for bunny back in the 60s? I don't, I it, don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't do that kind of research here, Ron. Come on. Okay. In this era, balls didn't directly feed into the shooter lane automatically. You had to feed them in manually. They used to call it like a spoon mechanism. So you would uh, put your ball into the shooter lane and you'd pull the shooter rod and shoot it. And then when your ball would drain, then you could add the next one mechanically. Yep, it, was a, it was a little rod below the shooter lane. You'd push it in to load a ball. Yeah, so there wasn't a coil under there that when the ball would drain into the trough, it would pop another one out. You had to do it yourself. So theoretically, during this time, you could feed five balls into the game as you were playing, and you could kind of play multiball. Yep. You were paying a dime in 1963, so I seriously doubt that you were putting five balls in there at once because you're kind of banging through it really quickly that's kind of expensive, but it was kind of neat because this game, you could throw multiple game, multiple balls in there in the hope that you could get more of these uh, bumpers to light up in order. So what about that theme? It's fairly ladies, uh, sexy kind of theme, right? Maybe they're supposed to be, maybe they're supposed to be Playboy bunnies. Oh my goodness. Well, I mean, they could at be. this time... Wayne was designing games for 16 to 24-year-old men. And, of course, they made a lot of games with ladies, uh, a lot of dancing ladies, and, you know, silly things to make you laugh or giggle. 
because boys are kind of dumb sometimes. But they do look a lot like Playboy bunnies, don't they? Yeah. Wayne says, we did a lot of things in those days. Today, we would have been sued. We never thought of being sued. People weren't in the business of suing people at that time. I think they thought, well, it's good publicity. What happened? This is, this is something that popped up as well during the researches. What happened to all the design stuff? The sample plastics, the, the drafting boards, the pictures, the, the outlines, the notes that Wayne would write. Mm, everyone might want to cover their ears here. Because Wayne says, everything landed in the loft at Gottlieb. After a run, the glass plate, boards, plastics, brochures, everything was thrown up to the loft. When the loft got full, we'd hire a truck to come in, and they'd push everything out the loft window. You saw everything going out that window, and of course, at that time, all you wanted to do was clear the space to get new stuff in there. So they threw it all out. Did you hear all of those people driving to work screaming? All that history just thrown out a window, literally, into like a garbage truck. Tip of the hat again to the pinball database online because they've been able to cement a lot of that history and keep it going. Thank goodness. One of the fun games that I found when I was looking through uh, Wayne Nyan's games was Skyline. And this is a nightclub elevator theme. It is from January of 1965. It sells 2,000 units. Really famous for a, an unusual back glass animation, but also the beautiful, beautiful Roy Parker art on the back. Well, did you know it has the new multi-bumper scoring? Or if you're in uh, the Wisconsin or Chicago, the new multi-bumper scoring. New comical. Multi. Oh, I hate that. New comical light box animation. But it is a it is a fun, interesting uh, game. The theme, okay, it's like a it's like a, a a a nightclub really high up in a skyscraper in Chicago, and there's an elevator there as well on the back box. And as you uh, build up your score, eventually the elevator opens up to um, reveal a very back box image but you can look out the window there's like a restaurant in the background people are ordering they're wearing beautiful suits it's very elegant they're obviously very high class fancy society in chicago and in the background of that back glass there's a window and behind there you see the the chrysler building you see the this beautiful skyline with the with uh, RCA and Americano and the Ritz, um, Chicago in the background. It's very cool. All the All signs. kinds of places that didn't give their permission to use their, <laughs> their stuff <laughs> in this back class. The, uh, the, the play field art in itself is also very beautiful. It's, it's these dancing couples and it's really, really elegant. So the object of the game is to get you to keep playing. And there's got to be a gimmick. The gimmick is that the the elevator doors open up and there's people standing in front of him, uh, the, standing in front of this elevator, like gasping, like oh, who's who is coming out of here? Because everybody's there is like high society and bow ties and fancy. Ron, when your score gets to a certain level and the elevator doors open up, what do you see? Uh, I assume it's supposed to be a homeless guy and uh, a dude in drag coming in together. Yes. That's the, this, they're coming in to crash the party that is high society. Damn high society. Be great if it was like the Blues Brothers or something coming through there. Yeah. Look in the restaurant. 
I know that's nothing to do with Skyline, but well, wait a minute. No, that's in Chicago, isn't it? I think it is. Yes. Yes. See, there is a tie-in. Now, Kings and Queens is from March of 1965. It sells 2,875 units. This machine is famous because it was used in the musical Tommy with Roger Daltrey playing it on stage with Elton John in those crazy stilts boots. Do you remember that? I do remember that. So if you throw that into Google, it will come up where Elton John has these crazy stilts boots and he's super tall and um, he's like playing a 10-foot high pinball machine in like a futuristic cabinet. Well, the cabinet has a keyboard in the front of it that he's playing. Yeah, it's a whole it's a whole thing. Start. Let's start with Kings and Queens before we get into the game that Elton John is playing. But Kings and Queens is, as you could probably guess, a card playing style of game. It's a a, a lady who's cheating playing cards against a a gentleman. Uh, they're cheating. There's another lady standing behind that gentleman with a mirror to show you what his cards are. And there's like a few fellows at a at a western bar scene in the background. There's a fellow under the table who's passing cards to the uh, the gentleman at the card table. It's a very comical fun backlash. So everyone is cheating. Everybody's cheating in here. Very crazy. It's another great creation from the master maker of card games. Gottlieb's Kings and Queens. Gottlieb had card games like Lockdown. That was like a niche. <laughs> they really did amazing jobs. Like all new colorful sunburst pop-umper caps. The art design of the pop-umpers is new. Yes, this is when you think of sort of the 1970s, you know, pop-bumper caps. These are those caps. The- In the 60s amazing in the 60s i know this is like the birth of that which is pretty cool it's a fun little game um i have seen and i have played kings and queens uh it's all about sort of shooting the capture holes i think and those give you aces kings queens and jacks and then you build up your hand down at the bottom it's really challenging because it has the flippers are those those little two inch flippers they are are not your traditional Italian bottoms. So what I mean by that is there's no inlanes that feed the flippers. The flippers are attached to the slings, and it makes it really difficult to get a hold of to catch up and line up your shots. Brutal. So much fun, though. Wow, there is, like, so many lanes. So many lanes. There's, what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven lanes at the top, and then there's four in the middle of the play field. Well, if... If does it go all the way to the left? Like this, can it go there? Eh, probably not. Because then it'd be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine lanes. Oh, there are. Look at cow. that. That's a lot of Super lanes. Supersonic. Hold my beer. You have no lanes. Five lanes. That's for wussies. Elton John in his crazy boots is playing a game called Buckaroo. Also by Wayne Nyans. So he's. Wayne Nyans is, is attached to The Who. He's, he's all over The Who when it comes to the Tommy musical. It's the Western Cowboy theme, June of 65. It sells 2,600 units. 
And uh, this one is is really neat because it has a back box animation of a horse kicking a cowboy in the ass, which is pretty great. Uh, cowboys always did well in certain markets. Apparently, New York City and Wisconsin always bought a bunch of cowboy theme pinball machines. I think this is because there was like this romantic image of the Wild West. People in New York City were in New York City, and they never really ventured to the West. Traveling out of the city was something that sort of rich people would do. I, I do like the back box animation. It is funny. It's pretty cool, isn't it? You know, we thought he was the Bally Table King, when in reality, he was the Gottlieb Table King. Yes. Oh my goodness. This was Wayne's last really big project, and he'd only release one game in 1966. He didn't release any games in 1967, and only one in 1968. Uh, Roy Parker would die in 1966, probably influenced the fact that he didn't want to make a whole lot of games. As well, he's starting to move into more of a management role. Wayne's last game was the smash hit Paul Bunyan. You're a big Paul Bunyan fan, Ron. Uh, that's the big lumberjack guy. Yes, your your uh, spare bedroom is themed after Paul Bunyan, is it not? Uh, it is not. <laughs> oh, so this is the like the giant lumberjack yeah. guy. So he's like this myth of the lumberjack who's like twenty feet tall. I will tell you in Lake George, which is the resort area, like an hour north of me. They have a mini golf and they have uh, around the world in 18 holes and around the U.S. in 18 holes. And in one of the holes, they have Paul Bunyan, like the uh, they got big like he it was originally for some parade or something. It's It's been there for like 40 years. This thing, huge Paul Bunyan statue, Johnny Appleseed, Paul Bunyan, all those kind of like romantic 1940s American myths, right? Like. He's, he's a big deal, Paul Bunyan. Do you know it has dynamic total playfield action? It is dynamic. It has six flippers. It allows players to make relay recovery shots at the very top of the playfield. It has an ABC oh. rotation sequence. Relights running light rollover and target for 500 points. It has bullseye targets. Lights top roll under for shoot again feature. Shoot again, extra ball. Two kickout holes like for 600-point score. And they do have, at this point, Gottlieb does have the little Gottlieb flipper skill game. Yes, because they, they're drawing those distinctions, right? Yep, this is skill. That extra touch of quality and originality is what you get with Paul Bunyan, which has an interesting backlash. Yes, this is art by, uh, oddly enough, Art Stenholm. This had a little bit of input by Ed Krinsky and Steve Kirk. Steve Kirk. Mm-hmm. From Meteor and Stars. And Nineball. And Gamatron. would eventually move on to Stern. Now, there was also an Italian version of this game that sold 1,725 units. That game had a different name. It was called A Big Jack. No, it was called Big Jack. A Big Jack. <sighs> Wayne would start to move into more management positions at Gottlieb, and we'll get into that in a whole other podcast in the future. So we'll go into Wayne's uh, career and his um, management in another episode, 
But I want to talk about Wayne's retirement and his move into the centenarian that we all know. Upon retirement, Wayne moved to Mountain Home, Arkansas. What's your favorite part of Mountain Home, Ron? Uh, I'll let you know when I go there. All right. The, the wonderful, wonderful population hub of Arkansas. Also a very difficult word to spell, Arkansas. I'd had to type that out quite a few times before I got that right. Arkansas. Just say it like yeah. that and you're all, you're all good. It's, it's very odd, very odd. So there's a wonderful article in the Pinball News about Wayne's 100th birthday, his photos, and a beautifully written article. I'll include it in the show notes. To, to, to add some context to this, currently, as of 2023, only 6% of the Earth's population are above the age of 100. Getting there is not particularly easy. Pinball historian Gordon Hayes put together a presentation for Wayne on his birthday. That presentation is also in the Pinball News article. Another pinball historian, Michael Sh- Michael Scheiss, I think. Michael Scheiss and Larry Zartarn. Mm. The guys from the Pacific Pinball Museum. Like, I really try for these names, but my God. Anywho, let's move on. Uh, they presented Wayne with a pinball trophy of sorts from the Pacific Pinball Museum. It's a score motor with pinballs mounted on the top. And they also added three EM score reels, and they set it to 100. And every year at Wayne's birthday, they would move the final reel one digit. So it would move from 100 to 101 and 103. It was a wonderful gesture and something that I think is amazing. And the Pacific Pinball Museum probably has one of the largest collections of EMs. Of any place I I can think of. And you've been? Uh, I went to their, they used to have the the Pacific Pinball Expo every year. And they would have a section that was just tons and tons of EMs. Lots and lots of Wayne Nyan's games in attendance. Yeah, this was in uh, Marin County. They used to have it. It was very close to James Hetfield and Metallica's home. Oh, very cool. Somebody's looking up IPDB. No, I was not looking at that. Because <laughs> his custom Earthshaker Metallica pin was there one year because he lived right oh. in the area, so they just brought it to the show. Mm-hmm. Pinball Magazine number 5 was also uh, published in 2018, which featured a large section about Wayne Nyans. He was featured on the cover in a, I think, a very... Uh, old school, cool uh, picture of him in a white shirt with a tie and those dark rim glasses. Fantastic. It uh, was a large article that was written by Gordon Hayes. Also included in the magazine was an interview with Jonathan Justin, where he and Wayne reflected on Wayne's career with industry legend, Alan Edwell, John Burris, and the patron saint of pinball, John Norris. Have you read pinball magazine number five? Uh, I have not. I flipped through it. I saw it at a show one time and I flipped through it. It is huge. To call it a magazine at, at all, that thing is is insulting it. It's like a, it's clearly it's like a, a book. book. Yes. Uh, this was also the last pinball magazine which had been published, which is a bit unfortunate. They haven't released one since I've joined pinball. 
Wayne's 104th birthday was marked with a special cake, a celebratory banner from John and Jan Osborne, and the ceremonial changing of the trophy digit. The following day, Wayne passed away. That was July 30th, 2022. His funeral took place on August the 2nd, 2022, at the Roller Funeral Home in Arkansas. I actually took a moment to uh, sign the guest book digitally for Mr. Nyans because even though I've had limited interaction with him, he has done a lot to make me smile. It's probably probably the last of the old guard. I mean, him and Steve Kordick both love to be 100. If you look at where we started this podcast of a cubicle made of chicken wire and where we are today with an HR department, there has been a lot of change in pinball. <laughs> It's, uh, it's something else. But you can also see that Wayne had a love and a passion that he just, he, he worked hard and he loved it and he did that. And as you said, he literally went to Chicago Expo all the way into his 90s. So any final thoughts of five decades around pinball with Wayne Nyans? Thank you, Wayne, for all those games. All 100 and... What was it, 60? 60. 160 games. From some of the interviews I've read, stuff I've seen about him, he, he really liked the engineering part, like the making the stuff work part. Supposedly, he didn't even need the schematics and stuff. He could just do it all in his head. Like, he got to us. That was, yeah, I saw, I read some kind of article or heard something. It, it was something like he, he got in his 80s or 90s before he actually had to look at the stuff anymore to, to remind himself what he did. He could, you know, before he could still all do it just in his head. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. I can't remember what I had for breakfast without writing it down. And what was the, what was the Wonelli game based off of again? Was that Continental? I believe it that was. It was yes. one of his games, and they, they asked him about that, and his, his response was like, why that game? That's not one of my better games. <laughs> Yeah, that's a terrible <laughs> like, game. Like, why did they do it off of that one? Most of the content from this podcast was was gleamed from some YouTube videos that Wayne had done with the Pacific Pinball Museum. Please watch those videos. Now, there it's Wayne, you know, staring into a camera and talking, and they're kind of boring. The content and the quality of what he's saying is second to none. And he's so... It's so amazing to see that he is so sharp at that age and able to remember those things. And he talks about all these people like Jimmy Johnson and names we've never heard of before. These people that hopefully we've given a platform on this podcast that they will be remembered. When he was at Expo, I always thought he was like in his 70s because that's how old he looked to me. It's like, oh no, he's almost 100. Like, what? Fantastic shape. Thank you, Wayne, for everything you've done. As always, you can send your comments, questions, corrections, and concerns to SilverballChronicles at gmail.com. We look forward to all your messages, and we read every one. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcatcher. Turn on automatic downloads so you don't miss a single episode. Remember to leave us a five-star review. That way more people can find us. Join us on Patreon and support the show. Become a pro crony. This is the perfect way to say thank you, and it starts at $3 a month. Want to get early access to the episodes before everyone else? Have a strange love for stickers? Do you know what Discord is? Because quite frankly, I don't, because it's the 1940s. 
jump on to the $6 a month premium crony level. Want all those other packs? And a shirt after three months? A free shirt? Are you crazy? Join us for $20 a month on the elitist crony level. But maybe you just want a shirt. I understand. I like shirts too. Swing on over to silverballswag.com and pick out your favorite Silverball Chronicles t-shirt. And don't forget, you can also listen to my other podcast, the Slam Tilt Podcast. Give that a look-see, or a look-hear, as the case may be. Slam Tilt Podcast, brought to you by the letter F. For fun! For f*** you. Oh, no. <laughs> Wrong! <laughs> oh, God. I shouldn't have taken this one. Surin... Festian? Yeah. Is that okay? Until next time, David, the news of the world is over. <laughs> and the Hindenburg blows up. Oh, the humanity! <laughs> oh, the humanity! <laughs> Alrighty, shall we get underway, sir? Yes, sir. Alrighty. <clears throat> so let me do the old, the old uh, sip of water here first. <clears throat> It's like it's like Mabel eating chips on the Pinball Party podcast. Oh, having a brain fart. Hold on. Let me think. Maybe I got like maybe I'm going C now. Could be possible. I am, I am old. <laughs> What's the thing again? Not the manual, but the, okay, hold on. Yeah. <laughs> like the seatbelts in the Impala, they they had to be primed or whatever. You were supposed to pull them down slightly and release so they would actually like lock into place. Like if you grabbed it and pulled on it real quick, it it didn't stop. It didn't work that way. How about the lap based, uh, the lap based belts, right? They go across your lap. So then when you get in an accident, you turn into an accordion. Yeah. No, you You know know what I mean? Like harness. Come on. Let's be real. Oh my God. The Impala didn't. Yeah. The Impala. Yeah. It just had lap belts in the back. Oh, Terrible. It's great. And I'm still alive, you know? Amazing. You sound better than I do. We did it together, Ron. High five. Uh.